0: Hello, Brian here. Uh, you're about to listen to the second part in Justin Roll and I's three-part series on Harry Truman and the start of the Cold War. In this episode, we're going to talk about the division of Europe, most specifically the division of Germany between an East Germany and a West Germany, uh, as well as other uh considerations in europe like uh, which nazis we were going to put in charge and which nazis were just going to move to the united states so before you listen to this i just like to let you know that part three the conclusion of this series is up on our patreon right now along with a lot of other great patreon content just hours and hours and hours of sweet sweet beautiful content so if you uh Want to hear how this all plays out? Whether or not the Korean War is going to redeem the U.S. Imperial Project after World War II, or whether it's just going to be a terrifying genocide uh, of, you know, Nazi-like proportions? You could go listen to that right now on Patreon, right? Uh, Patreon is just $5 a month. It's half the cost of a Mariner's dog, Uh, if we were not in uh, the middle of a plague and you were able to go to a baseball stadium. And it weren't January, I guess. But anyways, uh, enjoy the episode, and and once you're done letting it fill your ear holes, go over to Patreon and uh, see how this whole thing wraps up. Alright, see you on the other side. Previously on Mechanical Freak Presents... I, I think the the main sort of takeaway about the discussion of the bomb and, I, and is that the use of the bombs was about intimidating the Soviet Union and was essentially the first act of the Cold War and that the three-month window from the end of the war in, in Europe to the Soviet entry of the war in Asia essentially is a ticking clock, you know, uh, where the U.S. is just desperately trying to get this thing finished and dropped. And we just barely make it in under the window right so you know the Soviet Union was entering the war on August 8th no matter what in August 6th we just are barely able to finally get that bomb off and dropped and that I think pretty safely puts the use of the bomb in the category of horrifying war crime uh... yeah
1: none <laughs> And keinen Plitz für Sieger
0: Kriegsminister gibt's nicht mehr und auch keine Dösen Flieger. Heute zieh ich meine Runden.
1: See die Welt Trümmern liegen, haben Loft gefunden. Denk an dich im Glas Flieger.
0: So going from the Pacific Theater back to Europe. Um, where you know a lot of things are happening after Germany surrenders. It's not just uh, hey, they surrender, let's all walk away. Uh, much like Japan was in you know shambles by the end of the war, essentially all of Europe is in shambles as well. And you know there's war refugees everywhere. there are this the sticky thing of what to do with all the people in the concentration camps. And there's also you know German POWs and stuff like that everywhere as well in the us and britain come up with this brilliant idea of well let's create displaced persons camps uh which is what they called them dp camps let's make these dp camps and uh we'll just shove all the people into there and wouldn't you know it there's actually some camp infrastructure just already hanging around right right so survivors of say bergen belson uh, got to keep living in Bergen-Belsen after 1945. Again, in one of the truly horrifying ironies of uh, World War II, one that is, I mean, shockingly not talked about uh, in the U.S. I mean, there's there's like no histories of this or anything like that really written. Um, it's it's really strange, but basically. For years after the war, the U.S. runs these open-air displaced persons camps uh, under the stewardship of uh, George Patton, which we'll get into in a second. But I just wanted to read this this quote. Uh, Truman in 45, he sends an immigration official named Earl Harrison uh, to go tour the camps and, and report back. And Harrison tours the camps, and he writes back... Uh, You know, quote, the survivors have been liberated in more of a military sense than an actual one. As matters stand now, we appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. They're in concentration camps in large numbers under our military guard instead of SS troops. And basically what's happening in Europe is, you know, Groups that are considered desirable are allowed to repatriate to the countries, you know, that they were from, right, before they became refugees. But in particular, Jews and Roubani, uh are not allowed to repatriate back to their original countries. So France isn't taking them. Germany is not taking them. You know, Italy, Britain, nobody's taking them, right? And they're just stuck in these fucking camps.
1: I think, um, and I think, and this isn't, this really isn't true, but I think uh, in In some books, they give the explanation that, well, like a lot of, uh, you know, Jewish people that were abducted and put in these camps, like, didn't want to go back home.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I have a sneaking suspicion that's probably not true. Now, there's, yeah, yeah, there's also the problem, too, of when Jewish families would disappear in Germany or France or something like that, right, meaning rounded up and taken to camps, it's not like their neighbors and stuff were like, oh, let's uh, make sure to keep their houses in order and stuff just in case they return. You know, people looted the houses. They lived in them. People just moved into them, you know. And so that also led to a sticky issue of, well, we have these populations that the countries, you know, th- these countries already don't want. And uh, now we're going to have to uproot, you know populations that we do want from houses in order to move these people back and it, it just became easier i think for them to just say uh no we're just not taking them and by the way this became a mirror image of what happened you know just prior to world war ii when there was these this attempted large out migration of jews from uh, germany especially but from other parts of europe and uh there's this Famously, the most famous is was what was called the Ship of the Damned, which was the, the yeah. St. Louis uh, that was denied port uh, at the in the United States and Cuba. Basically, we sent the Navy out and told them they even tried to like port. We'd fucking sink the boat and, you know, it contained mostly children, which might became a big story. But, you know, most of those people ended up they were turned back to Germany and most of them ended up in concentration camps and post war. The exact same bullshit goes on. Um. It's interesting when Harrison reports back to Truman, obviously this is, you know, going around in official circles, this report that he has, and Patton, and this is what we had gotten into earlier, you know, Patton becomes furious and uh, responds to Harrison's report saying, Harrison and his ilk believe that the displaced person is a human being, which he is not, and this applies particularly to the Jews who are lower than animals. He went on to complain that the Jews in the camps have no sense of human relationships, would defecate on the floors and live in filth like lazy locusts. So this was the guy we had in charge of the camps. Um, And Patton had this brilliant idea because he hated Jews, but he had a love for Germans as uh, he started to combine the POW camps and the uh, displaced person camps. And just put the German officers in charge of the displaced persons camp so that that his guys didn't have to be, you know, mucking around with this what he considered bullshit work. Right. And, you know, predictably, when he put the Nazis back in charge of these Jewish, you know, uh, Jewish inmates or whatever, you know, camp people that they just started denying them food right, Uh, which is easy to do because there's food shortages in Europe. And they just say, well, food's got to go to the Germans first, right? And guess who gets denied, right? Denying them hygiene products and things like that. And it actually leads to the death of, you know, likely thousands of people. Again, there's been no desire to study this period in history at all by
1: anybody. Well, I was going to say, if you ever go to, uh, you know, the the Holocaust Museum in D.C., like I've gotten there. I'm pretty sure they do not talk about uh, Patton or the displaced persons camp. I could be wrong, but uh, that's my memory.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, many, uh, you know, many kids in the South grew up as Civil War nerds, right? But my parents are from the North, and I always found the Southern story of the Civil War to be very annoying (laughs) and used to piss me off. Uh, So I became, as any good young lad does, I became the Civil War cut off to me. I became a World War II nerd. And I was more than the average person, extremely into this shit. And I didn't find about any of this stuff until, and I was extreme. And then I went to college and became extremely into like actual like foreign policy debates and stuff, and Mm -hmm. extremely into like the Soviet Union's history and stuff like that. And I still never heard of any of this shit. And it was really not until. I just randomly came across a book by a weird uh, right wing freak from the 80s who started to talk about all this shit about like the US is bringing in all these Nazis from displaced persons camps who are brought in by like CIA rat lines. And, you know, and that was my first inkling that these things existed. And I was like, well, this guy, I mean, this is just crazy tinfoil yeah. hat shit. And then I started to dig into it. And I was like, oh no this is very true (laughs) and while this guy gets the reason why this stuff was happening completely wrong he's not wrong about the facts of what happened which is um nazis were put in charge of the displaced persons camps they you know essentially continued to carry out atrocities under the u.s flag and uh while the jews the displaced persons camps were denied entry into any other country, those Nazis were basically given free entry into the United States, Canada, and uh various countries in Latin America, depending on what organization they decided to sign up with. Um but for the displaced persons themselves, you know, uh when uh was it what's the old saying that the evangelicals would give you when God, you know, closes when a door is closed, God opens a window or whatever. uh, will be, will be a pro- appropriately theological here in 1948 uh, the country or you know the country of israel is declared into existence right
1: right yeah and that was uh that was a big debate both uh you know in truman's administration and abroad
0: yeah and essentially you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that about why the u.s uh Pretty much immediately recognizes Israel as a country. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that, but I think one of the things again that we never talk about, but I think one of the big impetuses for the United States and Western Europe to recognize Israel is it created a very convenient uh, release valve for all these prisoners, right? That they were yeah. continuing to keep, right? Uh, that they could just dump them in Israel, which is ultimately what they do. Yep. And you know, the uh, Bergen-Belsen finally, the last displaced person camp at Bergen-Belsen closes in 51. And the, the vast majority of the people inside it end up in Israel. Now, I think a narrative, which is very convenient for the Israeli state and very convenient for Western, basically it's very convenient for all the powerful interests in charge, is that these people wanted to go to Israel. But I mean, if you think about it, if you grew up your entire life in like, you know, the French countryside or whatever, uh, it's probably a little weird to be like, yeah, fuck. I, I guess I just live in Israel. <laughs> like, you know, that, that's a weird yeah, move definitely. to make.
1: That's <laughs> why um, it's uh, a little, a little far away for a lot of people. Yeah, color me skeptical
0: that these people wanted to go <laughs> that way. Maybe after the way they've been treated, both by the German occupation and then by the American and British occupation, maybe at that, maybe after a certain amount of that, they basically are like, "All right, I guess we have to go." you know go somewhere else but i want to seems a bit strong
1: but yeah so i mean israel um i think like some context for israel is uh you know the british of course as they do had done in an imperialism and uh <laughs> they did a no growth <laughs> they had basically occupied you know palestine up until around like 1946 something like that um you know all all the the allies are having kind of this uh discussion about um you know what what do we do about um all these jewish people that have been displaced and they start discussing uh this two state partition plan
0: yeah, yeah.
1: um So initially,
0: again, everything that is old is new again, or whatever. Uh, The two state solution uh, is now back in vogue again, by the way, (laughs) of a two state solution along different lines than the British have proposed. Uh, But yeah.
1: And so, like, the interesting thing is, like, the Cold War kind of plays into this, where, uh, you know, the the Soviets initially kind of just supported, uh, you know, a single state, um, you know, that would you know, uh, encompass, you know, with, uh, you know, rights for both uh, Palestinian and Jewish people. Uh, they eventually kind of pivot to uh, supporting the partition plan as kind of, um, you know, this, this narrative develops that, um, you know, the partition plan and uh, Zionism is like, you know, the morally, you know, right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the USSR basically does a little bit of uh, opportunism there. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean, and the thing is too is uh, on the part of the creation of Israel itself, I mean, the world Zionist organization, which is the you know sort of international group that like funds the colonization of Palestine and the creation of the Israeli state, uh it essentially is like the PR organization for them. Um, which I believe is created in like eight, in the eighteen nineties at some point. But, you know, while the discussion of Palestine is kind of always around, they discuss lots of other locations for building uh this Jewish state, right? Including places in Africa, uh in Europe. Uh I think that at one point they even had a a scheme for some sort of like, you know, uh, you know, Church of Latter day Saints type <laughs> location in like the American West. Uh- um but you know it it's kind of interesting because there was extreme right wing forces and you know the zionist movement and actually left wing forces in the zionist movement and at one point i believe in the 30s the soviet union even offers you know it's basically like hey you know, uh, we've been talking to these like yeah you know, groups, you know, these like Zionists. And it sounds like they want to create a socialist paradise. They just want it to be, you know, to <laughs> have a, a, a Jewish theme to it or whatever. Right. Oh. And like and they basically offer them like a big chunk of land, I think, by the Black Sea. And they're like, you know, if you want to create your socialist paradise, why not do it here? Everybody thinks we're Jews anyways. <laughs> Come on over. Right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, and there's this sort of like fight that goes on in the World Zionist Organization about this, you know, the fight over where to put the country is as much about left and right as it is about anything else. And even by the time that they essentially settle on the fact that they're going to be in Palestine, I mean, there's sort of still a vibrant left in, you know, in these Jewish settlements. I mean, you know, in the form of kibbutzes and stuff like that. Yeah uh you know all that's going to eventually get swallowed up by the sort of colonial mission of Israel but you know it, it's kind of interesting i mean this is a very this is a time of uh, it's a very contingent piece of history where things could go a lot of different directions right there's a lot of potential in a lot of different ways and so when israel essentially you know declares itself, itself a, a nation the Soviet Union recognizes them immediately. And I think a day later, the United States recognizes them, right? So, yeah. And so you get this kind of Cold War play, right? Of like, there's a left and right potentiality in this declaration. And let's fight over it, essentially over who's going to win.
1: Um, what I remember happening is uh, Truman is the first world leader to recognize Israel. Mm-hmm. And then Russia is the first country to recognize the state of Israel. And yeah, there's very much this like back and forth going on. Um, and the interesting thing about that too is, you know, uh, the, Russia kind of does a little bit of opportunism, you know, tailism, oh, sure. whatever you want to call it. But um, then eventually, you know, as we all know, like Israel <laughs> it goes to being a staunch, you know, U.S. Western uh, capitalist ally so it, it doesn't yeah. actually really work well
0: there's going to be a continuing theme throughout this uh that the Soviet Union is very bad at foreign policy or particularly foreign diplomacy they're, they're yeah. extreme it pretty much always blows up in their face like Wiley e. Coyote um They're they're a classic example of somebody who thinks they're smarter than they are, you know, engaging in things. Uh, They think they're playing on a chessboard, whereas Truman's just walking around with a two by four smashing things. Uh, But the the interesting thing about Israel, too, is that, you know, past acknowledging, you know, Israel as a country or whatever, the U.S. really kind of puts them on the back burner for decades after that. It's it's really not until uh, the Six Days War, which I think is in 67, uh, the U.S. really starts to look at Israel as like, oh, maybe this is an important, you know, strategic ally in the Middle East, right? As opposed to a place to dump people we don't like. Maybe <laughs> maybe this is a place we should really start giving arms to. And, you know, it, you know, for Israel's, you know, case, they're like constantly kind of reaching out, trying to get some sort of imperial backer for their, you know, operations in the Middle East. At one point, they team up with the, Uh, British and the French to essentially uh, fake a Egyptian attack on the Suez Canal and try and like land troops on the Suez Canal to ensure British control over the canal zone uh, against the Egyptian nationalists. And it's a rare moment of Cold War solidarity where the U.S. and the Soviet Union basically both combine to speak with one voice and show up and like essentially sit the French and the British down and like if you don't stop this, we're going to drop nukes on you <laughs> oh, damn. And, and essentially force them to go home. Right. Uh, um. but yeah, they, yeah, they basically forced them to like end the operation and give up on it. Uh, but yeah, there's this sort of, I mean, again, there's a lot of like, you know, contingency in this early period, things could go almost any direction. And in the Israeli state itself, it's such a, uh, mixed bag of politics there's really something for everybody right so there's uh you know socialists on the kibbutzes who are arguing for like you know creating the soviet union in the middle east and then there's groups like the you know lehigh organization uh who were literally striking deals with the nazis during world war ii Not and basically being like hey we can fight with you guys right like it's cool <laughs> um you know so it's it, there's a little something for everybody in israel uh, but luckily, as we know, after recognizing Israel, Israel no longer is an important place that we have to think about in the <laughs> <first> war period. <laughs> um, yeah, not, yeah, not, nothing, nothing going on there. By the way, you know, as a, as an afterthought, I did say that the people who got stuck in the camps were primarily Jews and Romani, and uh, in the end, nobody took the Romani, and to this day, they actually get like shunted from country to country uh in europe and uh, i believe macron in france last year had like this big policy of uh like you know essentially rounding up romani camps and deporting them and you know it became this big hullabaloo in the eu of where would you deport them to because of course nobody else was going to take them <laughs> you know and uh but yeah, yeah. damn yeah um... yeah yeah talk about people who got really fucked in europe uh you know Right there at the top of the list yeah good times i'll
1: have to read up more on that um but the thing i was gonna say is um you know kind of like domestically in the u.s uh zionism was framed as sort of like uh the morally good choice um <clears throat> you know like an act of humanity uh you know truman was getting lobbied uh by uh you know, Jewish in- interest groups, uh, figures like, I'm gonna mispronounce this, but, uh, uh Chaim Wiseman uh, yeah. were kind of appealing to him. Um, and then like the, the opposition to Zionism was actually like an imperialist, you know, like economic argument in that, you know, figures like, uh, you know, General Marshall would say that, um, you know, if, if you recognize Israel, you're going to piss off other Middle Eastern states, and that could, you know, affect, uh, you know, our our oil, you know, situation yeah. in the U.S. So um, always think know, about that oil. It's it's interesting, like just mm-hmm. uh, the moral framing of this and that. Uh, you know, the framing of this, like even like you know, the, on the you know, this is the morally good side. Like there is no mention of the you know Palestinian people that were already living.
0: Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, they're just completely cut out of the story. I mean, the famous uh, slogan for the formation of Israel is a land without a people for a people without a land. You know, it just turned out, unfortunately, people have been living there for quite a while. Yeah. You know? And, you know, and the thing is, is, you know, we look back at this as history, right? We know what Israel became and all this kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, yeah, it's it's still very much up in the air and it's still incredibly unclear uh, especially for people who aren't watching it very closely which is pretty much everybody in the United States it's very unclear like what the israeli project is even um you know for everything for everything they hear about like hey these guys are like you know basically just nazis with stars of david on their flag uh which makes the us think they're great and wants to support them they hear an equally scary thing like they're sharing farmland and uh talking about abolishing wages and then like there's like mm, maybe we don't like these people right so even after recognition we do kind of keep arms length at them for for a while right um but again i mean it it's it speaks to the like great contingency of history as to what ended up happening there now interestingly you know or i guess maybe not so interestingly if you get their history you know the the israeli project because of the huge infusion of uh, people from Europe of, you know, Jewish World War II refugees and then camp survivors from Europe, it really does become this sort of European, you know, a project of European colonialism in, uh, in the Levant, essentially, Yeah, uh, which, you know, has implications to its day. I mean, for a long time, uh, jews who lived in israel but were middle eastern you know ethnically were you know treated like shit and you know there was all sorts of weird racial politics which still exist in israel today that were based off of this mass infusion of europeans into the region um but yeah so you know on to what was going also going on in the rest of western europe uh there was the issue of you know what to do. You know the United States and Britain are basically the military powers in Western Europe at this point. uh You know De Gaulle comes back from France, but it's pretty diminished, and the French state is, let's just say, in a, a bit of a crisis of um legitimacy, given that literally half of France was run for the Nazis by French politicians with no Nazi, with little to no a Nazi occupation. Yeah, uh, that little embarrassing after the war. Um, but, uh, basically the first order of business is to defang the left in Western Europe because the left has a lot of legitimacy, right? All the, you know, guerrilla fighters, all the resistance fighters were communists. They were generally organized, armed, and kind of, you know, under the inspiration or whatever of the Soviet Union. Um, so the Soviet Union has a ton of legitimacy, all the communist parties in these countries have a ton of legitimacy and huge popularity. So of course, the first thing the US does is uh, ban the Communist Party uh, from politics in, in France in 1947, in Italy in 1947, Greece in 48, more on that later, and yeah. West Germany in 56, right? So.
1: Well, in Italy, like, I, I don't know about as much about the other countries, but uh, Italy was definitely gonna win. Election, same in France, yeah, (laughs) they they were gonna win. I mean, they, I mean, fascism had been defeated. Like, what's the perfect antidote to fascism, socialism? Um,
0: and like I said, in France, too, I mean, you know, especially in France, they, you know, you have this thing of Vichy France, right? So, you have a huge section of the French capitalist class that basically were open Nazi collaborators, right. You then have De Gaulle, who, you know, I guess was touring around North Africa or whatever. But, you know, for a lot of people who are in France, like, you fuck this guy, you know, just roaming around with expeditionary forces, refusing to come back to France. Right. You know, it's kind of seen as like at best a, uh, a compromised figure. And then you have the leaders of the French resistance who were basically to a man like Soviet style communists. And so it's like, once the war is over and, you know, the Nazi boot is off your neck and everything, of course, like, of course, the communists are the ones with legitimacy. Of course, they're the ones that are the ones who actually fought the fucking occupation. This is going to also become a common post-World War II theme is the communists are popular everywhere because they did the actual fighting. And, uh, you know, the U.S. response to that is just to make it illegal for them to participate in politics.
1: Right. Because, I mean, after the war ends, right, like we don't send like all our soldiers and infrastructure home. There's this whole like, uh, leave behind network that kind of, uh, yeah, fucks with the left in all these countries. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, you know, you know, it eventually becomes, you know, under the sort of umbrella of Operation Gladio. But, you know, we have this huge network of former OSS guys, you know, U.S. military, British military, you know, British, uh, was it MI6 or the British, you know, secret services, um, you know, combined with the sort of apparatus of the German and Italian intelligence forces, right? So, uh, famously like Reinhard Galen is brought into the CIA as essentially a, a consultant and, uh, he, Starts, you know, managing the American intelligence networks in West in West Germany, right? And the main product of this is they engage in, you know, COINTELPRO style, you know, uh, plans of sabotaging the left, right, you know, uh-huh. uh, you know, printing false stories about them, blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But they also engage in some, let's just say, slightly more aggressive strategies, like uh the mass killings of political leaders uh you know uh massacres of civilians right Uh, there's a let's see if i can find it real quick there's this interesting thing of just what was going on in eastern uh germany right so there's william bloom who's a former cia agent who then wrote some histories of the cia that i'm gonna go and say the cia probably didn't appreciate uh but you know william bloom So he talks, talking about just the CIA operations in East Germany, you know, launched out of West Germany from 48 to 61, Um, you know, so operatives used explosives, arson, short circuiting and other methods to damage power stations, shipyards, canals, docks, public buildings, gas stations, public transportation, bridges, etc. They derailed freight trains, seriously injuring workers used acids to damage vital factory machinery, put sand in the turbine of a factory, bringing it to a standstill, set fire to a tile-producing factory, killed 7,000 cows at a cooperative dairy through poisoning, added soap to powdered milk destined for East German schools, were in possession when arrested of a large quantity of the poison uh with which it was planned to produce poisoned cigarettes, carried out attacks on participants of the World Youth Forum in East Berlin with explosives, firebombs, and tire puncturing equipment, and much more. So, I mean, that's just one zone of operation that they were working in. And I think they were, their probably most violent sort of zone of operation was actually in Italy itself, where, you know, famously under the strategy of tension, uh, they would just murk anybody who, you know... Uh, you know was perceived as being you know communist or communist adjacent which basically meant anything to the left of like Attila the Hun uh, you could expect uh, to you know get car bombed or you know fucking shot or whatever including like you know I think they fucking assassinate one of the Italian prime ministers I mean they're not going after just low-level targets they're killing very prominent figures Um, Um,
1: also with all the sabotage you know in this era you could just blame it on the gremlins That was a common thing. The gremlins and the airplane. Yeah. Gremlins and the equipment.
0: Well, and, you know, of course, when they're sabotaging stuff in Eastern Europe too, you would just say, oh, look, you know, socialists are just always looking for excuses of why their system doesn't work. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is always like, you know, you can always Um, just wave it off like that. But, you know, that shit was real. It was fucking happening. Yeah.
1: Truman uh, basically creates. The, the CIA during this period, right?
0: Yeah, in 47, he creates the CIA, uh, which, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny, because the creation of the CIA, which is, you know, it's been mythologized a lot, but it basically comes down to the fact that the American, like, you know, what you could call the American ruling class of, you know, East Coast, primarily blue bloods who went to Harvard or Yale. The wasps. Yeah, wasps, essentially. Uh, they basically, like, you know, there's something just a little too democratic about the War Department. <laughs> like, we need to have our own organization to, you know, set out foreign policy. And of course, it's not an accident at all that it's initially put in the charge of corporate lawyers, you know, and the Dulles brothers. But it, it's, you know, it's this sort of fascinating thing of, like, it's it's an open act of class warfare, essentially, when the CIA is created. And all the early operations are acts of class warfare directly. And that they are creating these, you know, essentially terrorist organizations in Western and Eastern Europe, whose sole purpose is to terrorize the working class into going along with the U.S. project in Europe.
1: You remember how... Um... You, you remember Joshua, Collin, Joshua Collins, uh, Joshua for Congress? How he was
0: <laughs> I know him as a Twitter
1: personality. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can you forget? Yep. But like, I don't know. Like everybody bashed him for like. I think at the top of his like policy page or whatever. Uh, his top policy was abolish the CIA. That's like, oh, like, how is that going to be popular with working people? Like, what a joke. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm like, oh, that sounds like pretty good. Uh, you know, this uh-huh. you, you might have been onto something if you could uh, explain that yeah. a little bit more.
0: I love that, too. Famously popular organization, the CIA. I mean, yeah. you know, the CIA is the villain. And I mean, really, until recently, the CIA has been the villain of as many movies as I feel like the Russian Commissar has been. Like, like, then, <laughs> Nobody likes the CIA. That's true. That's true. Yeah, like everybody's pretty sure that that the CIA is up to something, and whatever it is is no good. <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, I love this idea uh, that you know nobody would support abolishing the CIA. It's like I'm pretty sure that have broad support
1: actually. Yep, uh, I take back any criticism I ever yeah. made of that policy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or the man. Clearly, he was he was the yeah. man for the time. But yeah, it, you know. It it is true. I mean, some of these organizations, you know, we talk about like abolish ICE and stuff like that. Uh, Abolishing ICE is as much about proving that you can get rid of these things as it really is about anything else. Uh, But there are certain organizations like the CIA and the FBI that literally exists solely to destroy working class movements. And that is 99% of what they do on any given day who really do have to go. Like if if there's going to be any hope For the United States like they they do have to go and by abolish them I mean abolish them like the uh Soviet Union abolished uh you know Eastern collaborators in the Second World War so you get to read into that (laughs) but but yeah um but yeah so there's Operation Gladio and then there was the operations in uh Greece (laughs) Which maybe maybe you could tell us a little about uh, what happened in Greece or Truman's Truman's take on Greece. <laughs>
1: um, you know, Truman had uh, let's see at some point delivered uh, this speech called uh, that was kind of known as, and also like kind of put out this kind of you know platform called the the Truman Doctrine, and uh, the Truman Doctrine was basically just that. Uh, you know, the U.S., uh, can't just, you know, sit idly by. Uh, the U.S. needs to, you know, support freedom and, uh, you know, export our values of, uh, you know, democracy and, uh, you know, not, not just, uh, you know, export, you know, like, uh, you know, export things economically, but, uh, export our ideas, which, you know, are the best yeah.
0: ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to get those ideas out there. Yeah, and I mean, its first real test, right? You know, it's it's the usual duplicity that's an all American diplomatic language of export democracy and stuff, which you know instantly anybody looks at that should read that as what they mean is capitalism, right? Like yeah. democracy is the euphemism yeah. for capitalism, and, and particularly a an American led and primarily benefited <laughs> capitalism, right? And. You know, Greece becomes the sort of first, uh, you know, test case for this in that after the war, the British install in Greece, you know, why are the British in charge of Greece? I mean, there's all sorts of questions asked here, but essentially install this right wing military dictatorship that that includes many collaborators uh, with, you know, Nazi Germany and stuff in it. And, you know, it immediately devolves into a civil war. Right, I mean, it's a, a government that not only has no legitimacy, but is hated by the people of Greece. So it devolves into civil war, and the British essentially occupy Greece. But the problem is, is the British are in a pretty diminished state at this point, and their empire is falling apart. So they're stretched pretty thin. So they ask the U.S. for aid, and the U.S. immediately begins, you know, shipping military equipment to Greece. And this is the backdrop of Truman's speech, right? And it kind of shows what he actually means by exporting democracy, which is uh, we are going to give you uh, Western imperialism at the barrel of a gun. Right? Yeah. And, and it's, it really leads to, I mean, a lot of the problems in Greece that we see today, right, over the debt crisis and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, you can draw a straight line back to their occupation by Germany and this act after the war right by the british after the war
1: i think it's and it's also interesting uh you know in the truman doctrine uh, truman states that you know it must be the policy of the united states to support free peoples who are resisting subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures um, the interesting thing is like the communists aren't necessarily in the minority here and yeah. uh, the u.s really is outside pressure.
0: yeah yeah i mean this is the this is the real problem right In all this stuff about export democracy is that uh as as by the way the you know the american you know administrations from truman on acknowledge you know in their private communications with each other uh the biggest problem with democracy is the u.s would rarely win So, you know, in that case, democracy must be sent to the side and other means uh, must be brought forward. Right. And in Greece, I mean, it really is a a pretty brutal civil war. And by civil war, I mean, imperial invasion of Greece by the Anglo-American sphere of influence. And um, what ends up happening is, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of Greek, not essentially Greek fucking Nazis, are put you know ascended into power and a lot of you know greek uh uh you know people who had fought the nazi invasion right who had been the resistance against the nazi invasion and stuff like that are thrown in prison or killed right and that's the outcome right um and it's it's uh you know fucking astonishing (laughs) yeah a tragedy essentially right um and Again, all all in the name of democracy, right? But all in the name of this early Cold War. And so beyond the sort of political stuff, beyond Gladio and this military thing, there's also this, you know, other element of the US involvement in sort of Europe at large at this time that's generally painted as an unalloyed good, right? Which is the Marshall Plan. Right. right. And so I was curious, do you have any uh, any insight from uh, McCullough on the thoughts going into the Marshall Plan?
1: I mean, basically, you know, Europe is kind of, you know, in, in tatters and ruins, you know, like uh, a lot of Europe has been bombed and needs to be rebuilt. Um, a lot of these countries that have, you know, formerly been occupied need to kind of restart uh, their economy um so i mean uh you know uh i think secretary of state at this point you know marshall uh proposes uh you know giving however many billions in aid you know from the united states uh to help uh rebuild europe
0: yeah and i and part of it is that this combines like it's kind of, this is the community policing uh, SWAT divide that people don't understand. That's not really a divide that they actually go hand in hand. And the Marshall Plan and like Operation Gladio are two sides of the same coin, right? One's a carrot, one's a stick, and they get used yeah. simultaneously. And, you know, there is no legitimacy for these right wing parties that the U.S. wants to install all over Europe. And so one way to try and build an artificial legitimacy form is to pump them full of cash. Yeah. Right. Basically like, like well, look, I'll give you money. Yeah, here they have all this money to give you now, right? You know. Uh, so they they can build the patronage patronage networks and things like that that are, you know, required to build legitimacy for institutions that are fairly illegitimate, illegitimate right?
1: The other thing uh, is uh, the the U.S. actually, you know, the U.S. Uh, kind of invites all these countries to be part of the Marshall Plan and basically like get all this money, right? And one of the countries, uh, you know, they they invite to get money from them is Russia, um, mm-hmm. which is just like, you know, uh, you know, a method of propaganda where it's like, oh, see, like, uh, you know, we're we're the rich industrial nation. You know, we'll give you some money, and then if you refuse, you look like uh, mm. assholes, and then you're not in the Marshall Plan with the rest of Europe, and that you know isolates Russia a little mm. bit. You know, yeah.
0: Well,
1: it's about di-
0: drawing a line, right? A dividing line between you yeah. know, us and them. It also is—it's this little game that the U.S. actually plays with a lot of countries too. Uh, they did this with Vietnam as well, which is you know after the Vietnam War which is that the U.S. had agreed at Yalta and again at Potsdam that there would be reparations paid to the Soviet Union for, you know, the damage inflicted by the war, right? The Soviet Union basically took the vast, you know, majority of casualties and damage, yeah. right? And destruction of the war, yeah. Basically fought the war in Europe. I mean, you know, sure. like whatever the U.S. and British were doing in North Africa had a lot more to do with securing oil and uh, uh securing colonies and stuff that it had to do with fucking World War II. Um, But, you know, there was this agreement that reparations would be paid. Of course, the United States and Britain immediately reneged on that. And so the Marshall Plan, the offering of aid to the Soviet Union, is sort of, it's a double propaganda win. One, it's a slap in the face of the Soviet Union and that you're refusing to, you know, have West Germany pay reparations. But at the same time, you're also saying, uh you know it's sort of a, a little pay on to the west the way you can say like oh we offered him money and they pushed our hand away i don't know you know like yeah. it's kind of exactly. like your land, your landlord throwing you on the street and then offering you like a five dollar bill and then going exactly, oh yeah. he didn't want it <laughs> <You know? laughs> look how angry he's getting how unreasonable
1: they don't want to work
0: with us <laughs> yeah how unreasonable um but the other thing the Marshall plan did which i think that people in you know, Western Europe to the degree that any of them noticed at the time when they were just taking the money, uh, which was a little more insidious and a little more clever, actually, on the part of the Truman administration, is they actually changed the energy regime of Western Europe, and they moved it away from coal, which Western Europe actually has and can you know mine and stuff like that, and started to put it a lot more on oil, uh, which was conveniently something that the U.S. had, uh, let's just say, gained control of in the Second World <laughs> War. All that fucking around in North Africa, it turned out really wasn't for nothing uh the u.s also struck in 44 uh, roosevelt strikes a deal with the saud family to essentially form a joint american saudi arabian partnership which still exists to this day right Uh, and essentially put western europe on an energy source that the u.s controlled and it was sort of a a kind of an emergency you know you break glass kind of situation which is if you know the communists got too you know powerful in western europe but they if they're able to overcome you know outlawing the parties if they're able to overcome uh operation gladio right if they're able to overcome all these obstacles well i guess last you know case scenario we'll just shut off all their fucking oil and kill their economy <laughs>
1: um not they? they talk about that a little bit in that one adam curtis movie bitter lake like the first you know, deal with the fabs and oil and how that's the precursor to a lot of things. Yeah,
0: yeah. Adam Curtis talks about it. And there's also, I believe they made a documentary for it for PBS, a multi-part. But there's a, another very thick tome that is kind of good, kind of not. Because, you know, a lot of missing the forest through the trees in it. But uh, Daniel Juergen's The Prize, which is essentially all about Mideast oil, the history of Mideast oil in the 20th century uh, covers this like fairly extensively as well for those that are interested. Uh, It might've caught the PBS documentary. I did not. So (laughs) I can't tell you if it was good or not. I'm sure it was, (laughs) but um, so that essentially is what is going on in, in Western Europe, but in Germany in particular, I kind of want to like focus down on a little bit because the occupation of Germany is this thing that by the way we get to see played out again and again in in the post-war sort of period? But basically, there was this agreement that was come to in Potsdam that we've talked about a little bit about what would happen with Germany after the war, right? I mean, Germany inflicted a lot of damage, destruction, and death all across Europe, right? So there has to be some sort of discussion about what to do with Germany and and the other part of it too, so the Nazi Party was popular in Germany too. So it's not like it's like, oh, we got rid of the Nazi Party, so therefore the Germans are o- a OK in our book. <laughs>
1: right? Well, and then the other thing was <laughs> after World War One, you know, Germany yeah. gets uh, sanctions and whatnot, and then you know, fascism takes hold with all their, you know, grievances and all that other shit.
0: Yeah, the connection between World War One and World War Two is not lost on anybody, right? So yeah. the idea is like, how do we do this in such a way that we aren't just doing this again, you know, 40 yeah. years down the road? And
1: kind of it,
0: say, yeah, yeah and, it's, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, one of the first things they decide, and I would be curious, I mean, I'll have to find some like longer diplomatic history to see if there's an actual connection between the two, but they essentially decide on a reconstruction-like occupation of Germany right that the conquering armies are going to stay here and administer the German state until essentially a new civil sci- society can be built. And essentially then the German state will be reconstituted, um, you know, underneath that new civil society. Right. And the occupation will end. And initially the idea was the occupation would take like five years, maybe 10 at the most. We're going to find out. It goes a little longer.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but the idea was that essentially they would occupy it. And while occupying it, the first thing they would do is they engage in a program of denazification, which was beyond just having war crimes trials, was the idea of, you know, rooting out seed and stem the Nazi party and its influence in German society at large, right? Um, the other part of it was a destruction of the German uh, military and weapons industry and a there was actually an agreement that they would reconstitute the german economy which was going to be easy to do and everything was destroyed so yeah. the reconstitute the german economy on a light industry basis right like okay <laughs> the germans can't be trusted with large toys we've learned this <laughs> all right so but that's okay because we live in a consumer economy so let's just have yeah. them do light industry it's fine now anybody that knows anything about german uh, industry today will realize that didn't last um uh, the other part was to uh, essentially kind of call in the German landmass. So, you know, territory that Germany had seized from previous wars was, you know, re-ceded you know ceded to Poland and France and other countries, right? Uh, something that the West Germans were very bitter about for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, but, and then the final one was that they were going to have, you know, Germany pay reparations, right? And the idea was... In the process of reparations, this would be part of the denazification of, like, kind of a, you know, look, you guys, you guys did a no growth, you know, so now you got to do restorative justice, right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and this would, of course, all be administered via four zones, right? A, an American zone of occupation and control, a French, a British, and of course the Soviet zone in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe. Yep, that's the plan. The problem with that plan is the U.S. basically reneges on it immediately. <laughs> like, Truman Truman hates this plan because it was mainly come up with while Roosevelt was still around at Yalta. And he kind of gets forced into agreeing to it at Potsdam. But he's not a fan. <laughs> like He feels that he, maybe the U.S. should be calling the shots here. Um, I was kind of curious, did McCullough have anything? on the division of Germany in his, in his biography. I imagine it probably goes unspoken.
1: But I think, yeah, there's not too much on it. Um, I, I think he, he talks a lot more about, um, you know, like a- after, uh, you know, the division, you know, with, uh, with Berlin and, um, you know, the U.S. and, uh, you know, NATO and whatnot, uh, just airlifting all these, uh, you know, supplies to you know Western-controlled uh, Berlin. Like he talks about that a lot, but not not so much. Um, uh, you know what went on as far as uh, the four zones.
0: Yeah, and so you know, so it's probably worth going through. Like we'll go through like a little timeline, essentially, of what happens in in Germany because. You know, I, I feel like, uh, again, this is like one of those things that's just been completely seeded to the memory hole in history. But essentially, the U.S. creates, you know, the Nuremberg trials, the war crime tribunals uh, for the Western sector in 46. Now, you might ask, why is there a specific American like tribunal and a separate Soviet tribunal? Uh, the U.S. actually refused to share uh, uh essentially intelligence or case files with the Soviet Union or work with them on it. So eventually this, they just gave up and did separate trials, essentially, to uh, sure. their own tribunals. Uh, I'll tell you, if you're a German officer, uh, there was definitely one of those you wanted to be in and one you definitely did not want to be in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I, I can think of which one.
0: <laughs> so the U.S. starts the Nuremberg trials in '46 and by 47 they basically are already in the senate is already demanding that they be dismantled right and it's kind of funny you actually get senators on the floor who are yelling that the war crimes trials are a red plot to you know uh bolshevize western europe and you know these have to be ended right so already on a cold war footing it, the idea is like we we have to stop the the trials um and so in 47 uh they start to dismantle there's actually a very good movie about this that's a a sort of fictionalized depiction of it called uh, judgment at nuremberg that came out in the 60s that's actually very good mm-hmm. um but in 48 which is becomes the real sort of critical moment i think where the especially the soviet union realizes i don't think they're gonna follow through with this whole pot stamp thing in 48 the u.s begins to create a currency union in west germany so basically saying like we're going to reconstitute the Deutschmark and it'll be, you know, the same across the French, English and American spheres, uh, which the Soviet Union, you know, rightfully points out uh, correctly points, out, I think, is it looks like you guys are trying to create a country over there. Yeah. Yeah. A currency union is usually like a first step to creating a country. And so they're like, yeah, it kind of looks like you're trying to create a country over there. And that is what directly leads to the Berlin airlift, right? Which is, uh, once they create the currency union, uh, the Soviet's like, "Yeah, you should not do that. That's that's not part of the agreement that we had." Uh, they go ahead with it anyways. So the Soviet's like, "All right." And this is where we learn that the is very bad at diplomacy.
1: M- McCullough does not mention the currency union as a precursor to this. By the way, how convenient.
0: Yeah, well, it's weird. I mean, it's kind of like all descriptions of. Uh, like Israeli violence against Palestinians in, uh in like the U S media, it's always, you know, the Palestinians, uh, you know, attacked the, this fence that the Israelis, you know, peacefully built, you know, it is, it, there's never the, like, that's a weird thing for somebody to just do. Um, was there a before to that? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very funny, but so yes, this currency union gets built again in direct violation of the Potsdam agreement. And of course, prior to this, the U S had completely reneged on the, um, on the reparations, which was part of the reparations thing that was making the Soviet union nervous. Wasn't just that they weren't getting the money. It's that they really wanted Germany to be demilitarized. I think for obvious reasons from the Russian perspective.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And what the Soviet union was doing essentially, which Kind of, you know, uh, in a way, refutes this sort of idea that, you know, the Soviet Union was like wanting some sort of war with Western Europe. What the Soviet Union actually does at this time is they rip out all the railroad lines in in Eastern Germany, right? Uh, Essentially, they destroy the entire like East German industrial transportation, um, you know, sort of network or whatever, which if you're looking at things that you do if you want to start a war, uh, that's not one of them. Like You want that stuff. <laughs> you, you're going to want those rail lines if you're planning in invading Western Europe. But anyway, so the Soviet Union closes off Berlin thinking that they've engaged in a massive uh, political victory for their side and that the West will have to capitulate and, and, and stop their sort of machinations to create a new German state <laughs> um, on their side, uh, which, of course, famously blows up in their face, you know. as as most Soviet diplomatic efforts do. Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, from what I know, I mean, the U.S. is basically, you know, putting uh, tens and tens of, uh, you know, food and supplies and just airlifting them constantly uh, to Berlin to, you know, avoid, uh, you know, the the shutdown. Um, Spending, like, God knows how much money on this.
0: Well, it's kind of funny because it's sort of a double loss for the Soviet Union. It's like, one, you clearly look like the asshole in here. And you can try oh. to explain to people all day, like, no, you guys don't understand the diplomatic things that are happening here. Because, of course, you know, it's like, yeah, nobody pays attention to that. They're paying attention to this, though. Uh, it also, you know, the U.S. is trying to portray this sort of image, right? Maybe not so much at the at this exact moment, but certainly going on in history, is going to try and portray this image of the technologically advanced west versus this uh primitive sort of eastern foe in the soviet union and it's like you know airplanes are still like a major new technology in the world at the time and so the airlift is like a feat it's an accomplishment yeah it's a technological it accomplishment right and uh, a little embarrassing <laughs> which you know after about nine months the soviet union finally recognizes how embarrassing it is and stops right but yeah Gets nothing in exchange, right? So you know the currency union continues, right? So, in 1949 so the next year, the uh, war crimes tribunals are officially ended, and then NATO is formed. I'm not saying that those two things are connected in some way, but
1: <laughs> <you
0: know. laughs> but the NATO is formed, which for those who maybe not know is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and is the military alliance of Western Europe against the Soviet Union.
1: Um Yeah, pretty much
0: that. Yeah. I mean I, I think they were pretty clear about it when they formed it, you know. I'm sure they used the word democracy at some point, but they were pretty clear what they meant. Um so also in 49, so remember how I said the, the Soviet Union was feeling really nervous about this currency union because they like, hey, it seems like you're trying to create a West German state and that wasn't the agreement. Uh, In 1949, the US creates the West German state, which is the German Federal Republic or FRG, is created. So, and it's important to keep in mind that the agreement was always to have a unified Germany, right? Like, you know, we're going to do this sort of essentially civilizing mission in Germany, and then we're going to create a unified German state. And the creation of the Eventually, FRG, yeah. yeah, and the creation of the, yeah, and the idea was it was supposed to be like in five to 10 years, really. And FRG is kind of a, that, that's not doing that. That's the opposite of that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, so basically, and this is going to become a common theme, is that the U.S. was worried, you know, the Soviet Union keeps, you know, pastoring them about like, well, why don't we have a referendum about unification The U.S. is worried that uh, that unification referendum might not go the way they would want it to. So they keep sort of putting it off.
1: Uh, But Despite their love of democracy, you know, they're still worried about the vote.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and their love of democracy really comes through in these internal conversations uh, that they're having about it at the time, which is, I believe his Assistant Secretary of State at the time, Dean Acheson, you know. He advises, because, you know, the referendum and a unification would mean the removal of troops from every zone, right? So U.S. troops would leave their zone, Soviet troops would leave theirs, right? So a, mm-hmm. an end to the military occupation of, Europe, of Germany, right? And so Acheson advising on this, he says the removal of Soviet troops in East Germany, while that might be a desirable goal, the with, quote the withdrawal of American and British troops from Germany would be too high of a price. So essentially, saying any agreement that involves both of us leaving Germany is not an agreement we can get behind. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. which you can sort of read why the U.S. would want to stay behind. Which you know, George Cannon, who's also a State Department advisor at the time, an important Cold War figure, he sort of clarifies the point later, saying, "Quote: The trend of our thinking means that we do not really want to see Germany reunified at this time." and that there are no conditions on which we would really find such a solution satisfactory. So, basically, the U.S. at this point is against any sort of unification, right?
1: Yeah, they don't want any election. They don't want uh, communists to win.
0: Yeah, they want the occupation, essentially. Like, yeah.
1: you know, As far as they're concerned, the
0: occupation is, is making sure that things go their way. Now, in 1950, a clemency board is created to pardon uh, people convicted of war crimes in Nazi Germany. By 1958, uh, almost every Nazi war criminal who hasn't been executed has been granted clemency. Um, This is kind of important because basically what they're going to do in that same year, uh, the German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, he removes the uh, ban on access to civil service jobs from former Nazis and then, also in the same year, uh, hopefully in the same day, it would be very funny. He actually puts a ban on access to civil service jobs for communists. Curious. Yeah, what a weird thing. I wonder what they were trying to get at there. Um, and in a true testament to democracy, Adenauer, basically, who's the first chancellor of, FR, of the FRG, uh, remains chancellor for 14 years until he's literally dragged out of his office <laughs> by a protest movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just another testament to that. But So continuing, in 1951, a special amendment's made uh, uh, to the FRG Constitution, officially ending denazification. Adenauer then bans all intra-German trade in an effort to strangle the East German economy. So essentially bans any economic dealings with East Germany, which it's important to remember that just five years prior, this was like unified country. Like this is their trade networks are pretty built in at this point. Um, a little
1: protectionism, you know, just protecting yeah. their own interests.
0: Yeah, yeah, and definitely the kind of thing again you do when you, when unification is the goal. Now, in '52, the U.S. Uh, rejects the last offer that the Soviet Union makes towards a unification referendum, right? And it's kind of funny because Adenauer sort of signs, sort of gives his take on it from the West German perspective. Which is he says quote he tells the press quote I would rather have half of Germany completely than a whole Germany only halfway.
1: Yeah, don't totally know what the whole Germany halfway means, but uh, yeah. go off.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in fifty five, Germany's allowed to rearm and form a military again. Seems like a pretty obvious violation of Potsdam. Uh, yeah. The entire, pretty much entirely staffed by former Nazis. Again, you might see why the Soviet Union might think that this is uh, a bad development, and of course, they instantly join NATO. <laughs> uh, yeah, which Adenauer again tells the press the best way to regain the German East is through rearmament. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of funny at this time the East German or the uh, West Germans constantly refer refer to East Germany as Middle Germany too, like in all their press releases, uh, and, which is a sort of comments on the land that was ceded to poland so like areas Uh, of russia and stuff and again if you're an eastern european listening to this and they're basically saying hey the way to reunify this country is through rearmament and uh they constantly are referring to east germany as middle germany implying that they feel some sort of ownership over parts of poland what are you supposed to take from this
1: yeah, I think uh, I think they might have eyes on uh, some future territories.
0: They saw that in the uh, air as well. And in 1955, immediately after uh, East Germany forms its military, uh, the Soviet Union forms the Warsaw Pact. And so in 56, the year later, of course, the Communist Party was outlawed in West Germany. They'd already been not allowed to participate in elections, but were officially outlawed in 56. Yeah. It leads to the sort of... Uh, end, I think, of any idea of unification minus the uh, destruction of either the United States or the Soviet Union. I think that's like the, by 56, it's set in stone. The country's staying divided until the Soviet Union or the US collapses.
1: I mean, like the banning of the Communist Party in Germany is super interesting, just because, I mean, Germany is kind of like a hotbed for socialism historically. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Marx, German, famously. <laughs> you have uh, the German Social Democratic Party, which was at one point a socialist party. You have figures like, uh, you know, Katsuki, Engels, et cetera. Like that is, uh, yeah, that is a big deal that it was outlawed in Western Germany. Yeah,
0: I and mean, it's kind of interesting too because, I mean, one, Germany now is kind of like slightly returned to uh, that sort of you know status on a lesser degree but it, you know it has more vibrant left movements than a lot of other countries in Europe does but you know there's this weird question of you know the Nazis were just in power in Germany as I said earlier I don't buy the argument that uh, the Nazis were a minority party or anything like that I, th- I think that like most Germans you know at least up into like 43 or so were pretty down with what was going on you know, pretty supportive of the Nazi party, if not all their goals, you know, most of their goals. Uh, so why the need to ban the communist party in West Germany, you know, you, you're already like stacking the country with Nazis at every level. Uh, why I feel that need. And I think part of what was happening too, is that, you know, for regular people in West Germany, after the war is over with the, you know uh, ability for hindsight, you know, whether or not they were fully reformed on, say, their racist views towards other people, uh, they did see the Nazi project as something that inevitably like brought them ruin, right? You know, destroyed their houses, destroyed the economy, yeah. destroyed. You know, I mean, West Germany really was a fucking disaster after the yeah. war, and, um, you know, so again, you know, not to the same degrees like France or Italy, but. There was this real crisis of legitimacy for the right wing in in West Germany, right? And that's where that stuff comes from. And it wasn't necessarily that the communist movement was so strong, say, in Germany in 1944 and it just carried over into the post-war years. It's just that seeing what right-wing politics under fascism had, like, wrought in Europe really empowered the left, right? And so and that's what makes it equally important in Germany as in France and Italy to sort of crush that that movement
1: yeah i mean like yeah i mean communism is just a very appealing alternative to fascism right after especially right after you just see the devastation of fascism
0: especially for people in europe too it's it's easy to understand because it's not just that like communism was philosophically opposed to fascism and after the fact you're like Damn, I think some of those guys were right when they said X, Y, or Z, or you know, when they did that Twitter thread, I think they really had a point. <laughs> it wasn't just that it was philosophically a post-fashion, it literally crushed it too, right? <laughs> like, you know, like it like it that's fucking true. rolled it up, right? And and so uh, you know, that has that's a powerful thing to see. And in the post, you know, sort of history of this, you know, we're saying that basically. The West-East German divide is kind of put in stone by the mid-50s, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, in the 60s, there's this resurgent democratic movement in Germany, and it actually takes uh, mass protests in the streets uh, in Germany and in Bonn in particular to essentially oust the... Completely gerontocratic, you know, Nazi leadership that was in charge of West Germany. I think Adenauer, when he finally gets thrown out, is like 90 years old, okay, uh, yeah. and essentially a student movement's going in and basically saying, "Listen, old man, we're going to push you out of that chair if you do Germany
1: the really likes uh, really likes old leaders, like Hindenburg. Wasn't Hindenburg like 86? Uh, oh, he was
0: ancient. I mean, that was what's yeah. so funny when they put him in charge. You know. For, like liberals in Germany they were like oh you know we don't really want to deal with the left in any way uh, so we'll just put old man Hindenburg in charge and you know people will respect his uh, you know he'll negotiate with Hitler <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a
1: great negotiation everything's going to work out with this experienced old man
0: yeah and it was so funny because for you know you could, you could tell I mean in the American side you get all this too or you know like uh you know that thing in the Simpsons where Marge is becoming the real estate uh, you know uh, yeah and troy mcclure or whoever said that he's like all oh, uh you know what do you call this house and she's like "The house is on fire and he's like motivated seller you know like, <laughs> you know uh like liberals would look at that gerontocracy and basically be like mm, yes experienced you know negotiators or whatever uh but the nazis were very clear of like this guy's old as shit he could die at any fucking second basically they put us in charge. You yeah. Know? Like that was their interpretation of it. And yeah. uh it turns out they were right. Um but yeah, a story for another day. But yeah. but yeah, Adenauer, you know, he essentially gets put in charge because he's the he's like the only right wing fucking freak in Germany who wasn't you know 100% directly connected to the Nazi party now he has lots of nazi connections but he wasn't like in charge of like an uber group or anything right like like everybody else was like he he wasn't a direct fucking uh like straight line uh creator of the holocaust like you know all the other leadership guys were um which is why they put him in charge but it also in, it inherently made him ancient Because he was this, like, Hindenburg guy. He's, like, a member of the old regime already in the 30s, right? So by the time they put him in charge, he's already an ancient old man. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's this, this democratic sort of uprising in West Germany, and it actually leads to a reopening of war crimes trials in Germany under the German government, right? As people, like, demand, like, you know, we're fucking sick of living with these fucking Nazis. Get rid of them already. Yep. and uh, it's actually memorialized in the extremely awful movie uh, that nobody should ever watch called uh, I believe it's called The Reader with Kate Winslet, uh, where it's portrayed as a bad thing. It's very funny. <laughs> there's there's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it sort of takes place, uh, you know, it takes place over decades, but when the kid who is seduced by Kate Winslet is a Nazi camp guard. Uh, but she's only a camp guard because she doesn't know how to read and if you don't know how to read you won't know the difference between right and wrong when it comes to locking hundreds of people in a barn and lighting it on fire and then standing outside to make sure they all burn alive uh if you don't know how to read how are you supposed to know that's not something you should do
1: yep which is the, the pollution if you need as many facts and access to facts as possible <laughs> you need periodical.
0: Yeah, exactly <laughs> you need at least a harvard education to get that that's a, a problem right yeah. so i mean that's the, literally the plot of the movie it's so fucking awful it's literally one of the worst pieces of nazi propaganda ever put out uh not just because it's poorly written but i mean just the message of it is so bad uh the ends the the end scene of it is the kid you know so his his girlfriend who's the nazi camp guard who seduces them while he's a child uh she ends up in a uh german prison serving you know some crazy sentence for her you know burning hundreds of people alive the star witness against her is the one person who survived who was like a child in the camps or whatever and so the end sequence is the kid the son or the the kid uh going to New York to talk to the star witness and try and plead with her for, you know, some sort of like a clemency or something for the the Nazi camp guard for Kate Winslet. <laughs> and it's very interesting how it's posed because she's living in this very fancy New York apartment is clearly very wealthy. And it kind of implies that she made her wealth by writing a Holocaust memoir, right? Like there's something seedy, you know, involved here, right? And then it cuts to a very bleak cell with nothing in it and like, you know, no accoutrements or whatever. I think Kate Winslet has this one little box of like trinkets and he goes to talk to Kate Winslet and, you know, she's just resigned to the course, the, the Jewish woman in New York says, tells him to go fuck himself about the clemency thing. Uh, then he goes and talks to Kate Winslet, who's just suffering so sadly in the cell, and, and she's resigned herself, and then he leaves and she hangs herself. And it's like, ooh, who's the real victim of the
1: Holocaust here? But... She's lost all her class comforts. <laughs> yep. But there's
0: this hilarious moment in it where the, it actually depicts, interestingly, this, this moment in the 60s where they want to reopen the trials, and the kid who's now in law school, he's, he's viewing the trials with his class, and the professor starts giving this speech you know they've witnessed you know the they've been in the court right watching the trials and they come back to the classroom and the professor starts to give this speech and he's like look the question isn't you know is it illegal now to burn 100 people in a barn the question is was it illegal at the time which by the way was was not the question (laughs) of those trials by the way (laughs) but he's like was it illegal at the time and of course everybody's like you know good liberals are like "Mm, rules yes yes rules and the one you know the one painted leftist in the class who i believe even has like long hair just kind of depicted like a hippie or whatever stands up which doesn't make sense to you because this is all like the early 60s but stands up and he's like what the fuck is wrong with everybody like these people are fucking nazis they fucking (laughs) kill people like what the fuck are you talking about and and then he like storms out of the room and they all sort of look at each other and they're like hmm some people they just let the emotions get the better of them
1: <laughs> yeah
0: but yeah it's just a truly astonishing take from the U.S. and the modern period I don't know why I went on a long I hate that fucking
1: movie but um that's <laughs> bad I think I'm not gonna watch it but I'll take your word for it
0: yeah yeah it's also like just bad to watch but um yeah it was an Oprah Winfrey book club of the book of the month as well so there you go but I had some like sort of finishing thoughts i think they were kind of interesting from so thomas mann who's like a german novelist you know by the mid 50s he wrote of germany quote they of uh, west germany the old men and those who financed hitler have been installed once again as governors of american capital right So when asked about west germany that was his take on it yeah um and i had this interesting quote too from bruni de lamont and john green who write a history of the gdr which is east germany uh so they write quote right from the date of its foundation on October 7th, 1949, there was a determination in the West, but particularly on the part of the federal Republic to strangle it at birth referring to East Germany to ensure that an alternative social model to Western capitalism would not survive. Various kinds of chicanery were used to make life for the GDR impossible. Um, and I just think this one chain of events is interesting or is important to point out and know because it kind of flips the aggressor versus aggressive narrative a little bit it also mirrors what we're going to talk about in asia and the third part too is it kind of shows what the cold war was which it really had nothing to do with oh the german people need to have their own country or anything like that it was always from the beginning a just a a cold, calculated political battle between U.S. imperialism and the Soviet Union, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing how little, uh, you know, this, this is covered in our history books. I mean, I, yeah, previously I, until recently, I did not know about any of this and about, you know, U.S.'s, I knew about the U.S.'s operations, you know, uh, against other countries, I knew about the Cold War, but um, as far as like suppressing, you know, the socialist movement in Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing the steps, you know, the U.S. and capital took.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. I took multiple classes in college from both the history department and political science department on, you know, American diplomacy in the 20th century, American diplomacy and the Cold War and all this kind of stuff and weirdly all this is cut out of it <laughs> like just yeah. completely excised from any discussion like uh why like the fact that west germany and east germany were formed as like separate countries was just taken as a given from like the 1945 agreements right and it's like weird because it's like well if you if yeah. you look through the potsdam agreement that's not what they say and weirdly if you look at the back yeah. and forth between the us and the soviet union uh that clearly was you know, not the, that was not the agreed upon terms. It's hard to say the two parties agreed that that was the terms. Um, But yeah, just completely down the memory hole.
1: We,